You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. Ah, yes, so last week, to give a short review, we completed our discussion exploring Rav Cook's teaching on Kadesh, Kadesh, and we concluded with an insight from a predecessor of Rav Cook, Rav Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin, who said basically that the sanctity of individual times derives from the sanctity of Israel through the capacity of individuals, through each and every individual, which is why the command Kadesh is in the singular and not Kadshu in the plural. Because the, the command is also infusing in us the capacity. What's beautiful about the Hebrew command form is that while it's called the tzivui, it also spiritually, when God gives us a command, spiritually God is giving us the capacity, the ability to in fact do that. So yes, the command to sanctify one's own individual time is in the plural, and in fact with that command comes the capacity to do that. Individual sanctity, Rav Tzadok says, allows one the time. And Hever, this is the essence of his teaching. This little short teaching that followed Rav Cook's understanding. Individual sanctity allows one the time to be different from the other, to be unique. How often... Do we feel ourselves in the middle of a busy day and we feel it's not our day anymore? It really belongs to someone else or something else. And this command, Kiddush Hazman, even though it was commanded to all of B'nai Yisrael at once on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the capacity to actually do it is one of the most essential ingredients in declaring our independence, in being a free person. Because a slave is not in charge of his or her time. 
So that's why the step in the Seder of Kadesh is in the singular. So may we take control in the way we can. We know that the controller, the controller with a capital C, is surely not us. But the, the degree that Hashem invites us into partnership in giving us free will over what we can do and how we navigate any day is in fact Kiddush Hazman. That is individual sanctification of one's time. We then moved to the next step. Well, it's the, we say it in a rhyme or a chatz karapas because we wash without the blessing as we would when we wash with a blessing before bread. We'll discuss orachatz at a later date when we wash before the, the uh, motzi and the matzah. And we discussed karpas. And basically, in summary, what we understood from karpas, according to how Rav Cook brings down and understands a piece of Talmud, a piece of Gomorrah, that eating a vegetable before a meal, that was a course reserved for the wealthy. Even if it's a simple piece of parsley, a simple piece of celery, a simple boiled potato, because what happens when we have a taste of a vegetable, it whets the appetite for what will follow. So he quoted Rav Chista saying that Rav Chista said someone who's poor should not have a vegetable before their meal because it would almost be cruel to whet their appetite when their food is limited. And he said, even I, when I was poor, I did not eat vegetables because they whet the appetite. And from that piece of Gomorrah, Rav Cook then explained that we begin the meal already embracing abundance. Embracing abundance and the capacity not to, not to be in a space of an imbalance with the abundance. A free person can eat spiritually, whatever it is, vegetables to that person. Because the night of Pesach, as referred to in the Pasuk, Shemot Yudbet, Membet, 1242, is called Leil Shimurim. It's the night of protection, the night of, gar- of being guarded. So Rav Cook explains that we are actually protected as we're becoming free in our own journeys today. We are protected from an imbalance, from an overabundance, from a disproportion of people's values. Because we know how people can behave. We all have it in us because we all have this innate need to survive this fear-based behavior to behave from a place of scarcity rather than from a place of abundance. And just the way for a slave consciousness, freedom can actually be intimidating and can actually scare a person. Likewise, someone from a place, it's a consciousness here, from that consciousness of scarcity, can actually fear abundance. Hmm. But if we hold on, if we hold on to 
spiritually what this night of protection means, and we trust the giver of abundance, the source of abundance, we never really have to worry about that. We'll be okay. In our newfound state of spiritual maturity, Rav Cook explains, we will be able to live in abundance rather than in the previous state of scarcity. How many people do you know, including yourselves at times in your own journey, really are afraid to be successful? Ah, you know, there's been many books, many motivational speakers, many conferences and workshops literally about this. Rob Cook explains... However, we never have to worry about this if we trust. But he then concludes by saying that the spiritual maturation of being able to dwell in a place of abundance would never have come about were it not for the previous refinement in the smeltery of Egypt, in the Ilvat Haaretz, in the depravity of Egypt. For reasons that are not always clear, we need to go through this experience of scarcity to whatever we feel we're enslaved to, where that consciousness of scarcity is so prevalent. The way we've been created, it's a necessary experience to be in that in order to move out of it, to go from the limited to the expanded. Which is why many people who, in fact, do that, and those of us who are in the middle of doing that, as we move more and more to this other side of abundance, we're filled with gratitude. We're filled with a sense of wonder. As Rav Cook taught a few weeks ago, this is the greatest pella, it's the greatest wonder that when we come from a place of scarcity, we actually can live in abundance. That's the deeper message of Karpas. In conclusion, we didn't have an opportunity last week to finish off his teaching, and that's where we'll begin today, this week. He concludes by saying, likewise, similarly, Karpas also has a different meaning. Well, of course, the rabbis are known for applying layers after layers after layers of meanings to any one subject. And if there's any one Rav who himself does this, it's Rav Cook. So simply put, Karpas means greens. Now, when the letters are reversed, and for those who can picture the Hebrew or look in, in the handout that I sent you, if you look at the word karpas and you reverse the letters, it spells out samach with a chak, which means 60 in gematria. And then it, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word parech, parech. So 60 parech. Now, parech means hard labor. So 60 
also can represent 60 myriads, which means 60 ten thousands, 60 units of each unit being a ten thousand unit. So what's 60 times 10,000? 600,000. When we came out of Egypt, when we came out of Mitzrayim, and the first of the three numberings, the census, there were three census taken. The first is in the book of Exodus, um, in, in Parshat Bo. Right when we were come, right, actually, that's the Parsha that we exited. There it says in 1237, Yudbet Lamed Zayim, that there were about, there was not a census the way there were in the latter two when people actually contributed half of a shekel and then the shekelim were counted up. But the Pasuk says there were approximately 600,000. And that means, by the way, not 600,000 people, but men from 20 to 60. Because that was the age that one would then go into the army from 20 to 60. So there were, I mean, it's believed, according to the Midrash, based on that, there were three million people who actually came out of Mitzrayim. That's a big number. That's a lot. But be it as it may, the Torah actually uses the word 600,000. So if you look back at the word karpas, samach, not only meaning 60, but 60 myriads, like a rivava, rivavot would be myriads. So what karpas means is there were 600,000 Hebrew males who were subjected to hard labor. Perach means hard labor. So what's the visible outcome? What's the outcome of the hard labor? The visible outcome would be the greens our ability to indulge in them. You see, that's the process of starting out as a slave when they had no choice of what they would even eat to now being able to begin a meal with greens, which the Gemara says is how we whet the appetite, which is why we have a salad as the first course, because it whets the appetite. But the cause, again, he goes back to the cause that brought us here. The cause that brought about this effect was the hard labor in Egypt. And the Pasuk even says in the very beginning of the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verse 13, Shemot Aleph Yud Gimel, Vayavidu Mitzrayim et Bnei Yisrael Baparech. And the Egyptians worked. They enslaved the children of Israel with crushing harshness, with hard labor. So this is a very important teaching. Hold that for a moment. In all of your various journeys, as you move along your own path to moving into a space of more independence from whatever it is you want to be free from, there will be difficult moments. The road, the journey, the quest to authenticity is not just all peaks. There are valleys. But if we hold on and keep moving and keep believing in ourselves, in whatever the reason is, we feel compelled to move into that bigger space. If we trust 
However it is we understand a higher power, Hashem, God, the Almighty, our Creator, then the struggle, the hard labor, the, the parach, actually has meaning in terms of where it will bring us. And where does it bring us? To Karpas. So do you see the contrast between parach, hard labor, and Karpas? It really is the, it's really the differentiating between scarcity and abundance. That's when we sit down to the Seder table this year This may be, I invite you to have this kavanah, to have this intention when you're taking that piece of parsley, taking that potato, taking that celery or whatever it is you use, and as you dip it into the salt water to be reminded of the tears in your own journey, those moments when you just felt, oh, this is unbearable that that moment is what will bring you to that moment of abundance. And this is one one of Rav Cook's greatest, greatest teachings on the means to a greater end. Karpas has such a profound, such a profound meaning in our personal journeys. And I bless you that we all bring that to our Seder table. Don't be afraid of parach. It's not something that we should love, but we should lovingly embrace it, as I mentioned earlier. Lovingly embrace whatever the challenges are and have the faith, have the betachon, the trust, that you, you in your own decision-making, how you go about your journey, will shift the parach into karpas. Okay, with that, we move to our next step, unless we have a question and we have an insight, if anyone has a reflection they would like to share. Ah. So good to see all of you. Yes. Next step, yachatz. Yachatz comes from the Shoresh, chatza, like mechitza, chet tzadik hey. And it means to divide. What is a mechitza in a synagogue where there's separate seating, separate zones, separate areas for men and for women? That divider is called a mechitza. So when we divide, when we divide the matzah, that's called yachatz. Okay, the middle matzah. The middle matzah and I'm referring now to the handout from this week, for this week, the middle matzah is broken into two pieces. The larger portion will be reserved for the final afikomen, and the small portion is to be eaten for the mitzvah of when we eat matzah. Now, the final afikomen, which symbolizes the korban pesach, according to most commentaries, by the way, the Rambam disagrees, but okay, you'll very seldom we will have a situation where all the rabbis agree. But most rabbis traditionally agree that the Afikomen post 
Now, we had, by the way, we had a lot of Sadarim before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, where we did actually offer a Korban Pesach. But the fact that the rabbis today, meaning today is the period after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, it was after that that the rabbis attributed this other meaning to the Afikomen, which in Greek means dessert. It's then that there was this tradition to say it symbolizes the Korban Pesach, the Pesach offering. And the Pesach offering, they determine, is to be eaten al hasova. Hasova means on a full stomach. You know, in the Berkat Amazon, <clears throat> we quote the Pasuk, Fa'achata, Vesavata, Uveirachta. You shall eat, you shall be satif- satisfied, satiated, and blessed. So the word Usavata is from Sovea, to be satiated. <coughs> So the rabbi said that we should eat the final afikomen is to be eaten al hasova on a full stomach. The matzah, however, when we actually fulfill the mitzvah of eating matzah, that's to be eaten leteavon, similar to beteavon. So the word teavon means appetite. So beteavon means hearty appetite. Leteavon means with an appetite. So you see the, the contrast here. The smaller half is what we eat when we fulfill the mitzvah, when we're hungry. The larger half is what we eat at the end of the Seder, whether it represents the Korban Pesach or not. It's the dessert. We eat it satiated. <clears throat> now, this is what Rav Cook explains. Where he goes with this is exquisite. How many of us go through the Seder, we break the matzah, someone, different traditions, the parents hide it from the children, the children hide it from the parents, and then Afikomen is no longer talked about to the very, very end, before the Birkat HaMazon. Well, here is food for thought. This is a meditation. These two dissimilar eatings symbolize the two different stations along one spiritual journey. The spiritual novice, as all of us are at any given time, devours the meal ravenously. Why? Because the spiritual novice is hungry. Is hungry. Like it says, we need to eat this matzah l'tayavon with an empty stomach, hungrily. However, the more sophisticated, the more evolved, the adept, that person who has conquered One's cravings of the animal soul, meaning hunger, is already feeling satisfied. This person's eating is not out of necessity, but to broaden and enlarge one's spirit, 
Isn't that what the beauty is of dessert? You know, we don't have dessert in the beginning of the meal because dessert, the perp, just the way the salad, we've already, we're learning some dietary, interesting what Rav Cook is teaching us here. Why do we begin the meal with salad and end with, with a dessert? We, rather than begin as children would like, let's begin with the dessert and we'll worry about the greens at the end. The greens whet the appetite, then we have the full meal, and then we conclude the meal with something that just broadens, the, that holds the experience. It enlarges the experience. A little sweet, a little piece of fruit, a few nuts, not a whole big course, but a little something just to conclude the meal with a sense of more, of more. And we eat dessert, dafka specifically, after the meal, when we're satiated. So he also says that's part of a spiritual journey. We eat two different ways depending where we are in our journey. Sometimes we eat like a novice. Sometimes we eat like the initiate. Sometimes we eat in an inexperienced way, like we're hungry and we have to grab it. Other times, we're fine. We just want to round off the experience with something sweet or something salty or something juicy. For the ex- it's more the experience than the actual nourishment of whatever the food item may be. All too often, dessert we know, in terms of dietary understandings, may not be so nourishing. But it's the experience. And what Rav Cook is saying, who can really embellish, who could really, I'm sorry, embrace that experience? Not someone who's poor and hungry. Not someone who's not free. So regarding, so, so it's two types of eating. It's the matzah way of eating and it's the afikoman way of eating. The goal is to reach the sort of eating spiritually represented by the afikoman. But the spiritually realized person must never be disdainful of the other members of the human race who have not arrived at this plateau and must still satisfy their own hunger, their own animal desires. You could see what Rav Cook is addressing that part here, he's suggesting part of being more evolved, part of being more satiated, of being further along, comes compassion. You know, a slave mentality, someone who's enslaved by either someone else or something else, may find compassion a much greater challenge. But someone who's free and is dwelling in abundance and is eating dessert and is in that afikoman mindset, Rav Cook is saying, part of that is to have compassion. There's enough dessert for everyone. And if someone is not there yet, may we have compassion for that person. And he even says... It is possible the adept person, him or herself, has states in one's journey where he or she is unable to attain the heights 
of the afikoman type of eating. So even any one of us who in the course of a lifetime may feel we're more engaging with an afikoman type of way of eating rather than a matzah type of way of eating, something can happen in our lives, with our family, with our career, with politics, with current events that could suddenly cause us to take a few steps back into that scarcity space, into that hungry space, into that fear-based way of living. So have compassion over ourselves. Life is not linear. We're not on a plane. You know, when you drive across the United States, I had the experience once. I would not look for it again, but I'm so grateful that I did it once. And when you get past... I don't know, I think it was past Ohio, it was several years ago, you go through the the Great Plains, and you're driving, and driving, and driving, and already you've gone through Israel maybe 50 times. (laughs) It's like Israel's so small. One has a whole different sense of an appreciation for the tininess, however one defines the borders and the boundaries of Israel, pre, post, whatever. Nothing can compare other than maybe Russia or China or these other great huge land masses, but driving through the great plains where it's all straight, it's all level, that is not a spiritual journey. So yes, we may have moments, these highlights, literally high, like a peak, but that doesn't mean there won't be times that we will fall. Just like a child, a young child, learning how to walk. Many times, you know, they, they just don't get up one day and walk. There's a lot of falls. So what he's saying here is not only may we not disdain others for where they are coming from, but also in our own selves. Replace the disdain, the judgment with compassion with support, with encouragement to yourselves. Regarding the two halves of the matzah, one observes the interaction between these two types of eating. The mundane eating relates the person who eats just to satisfy the animal desire in one when one is hungry. The mundane eating relates to the afikoman as its end goal. Like the whole purpose of the meal is to get to someplace else. Contrary to what we would call mindful eating. (coughs) And we know, especially, look, we all have a child in us, but as adults, who have children, we know when children, as we're raising children, they always want to know, well, what's for dessert? What's for dessert? Well, wait a minute. I cooked a whole Shabbat meal, took me all day, and we, we just had a piece of challah and was serving a little salad, and you want to know what's for dessert? Yes, because they're children. They're children, and we all have that part of us. We already want to get to where wherever it is we're supposed to be going, and we're so focused 
on dessert, on the afikomen, that we're not experiencing whatever it is gets us there. I was just recently on a mindful, silent 48-hour retreat, meditative meditation retreat. And one of the one of the <clears throat> practices that we engaged in from time to time, it's called mindful walking. Usually when we walk, we don't think about walking. We just think about where we need to get to. And will I walk? Will I drive? Will I ride a bicycle? Do I take a taxi? And we think about the end goal. So if I decide to walk, I'm walking to the shuk to buy things for Shabbat. So already my mind, as I'm walking, I'm in the shuk. And where do I go first? Do I get the, the vegetables here? Do I get the fruit there? I need to pick up the chicken there. And then in my mind, and I'm not really mindful of my walking. Because the walking becomes a means to the end. Mindful walking is when you just look and you take your time and you just look at your feet. The lifting up, the putting down, how the body acclimates, the imbalance. Every time we lift up one foot and move and then lift up that foot and move, just that whole process, you could do it for five minutes. Afi Komen way of living is, I never really think about it. I'm always focused on the end goal. So the mundane eating chavra relates to the Afi Komen as its end goal. The spiritual eating, though, of the Afi Komen on the other hand, is a possibility only because of the prior stage of the more prosaic, the more commonplace eating of the matzah. The only way to get to that afikomen is to eat the original matzah. So when you're eating the matzah, don't be thinking of afikomen. These are all metaphors. These are all metaphors for your own journey. It's good. He's saying something different here than he said around Karpas, you know, the idea of um, from scarcity, from scarcity to abundance. Is it, it seems like it's the same metaphor. It's similar, but there are, there's a different nuance here. What he explained with the karpas is that the bitterness, the embittered labor that the Hebrews, that the Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel experienced, was part of the process in becoming free. That's why there's that change of letters. It's the very same letters. In the beginning, it was difficult. In the end, it brought us to abundance. In the beginning, it was from a place of scarcity. But once it was transferred, once it was shifted, same, same letters into something else, then it became something that we could trust and eat and partake of. What he's saying here, it's related, but a very different nuance. How I understand it, how 
it has been taught to me, what resonates for me, and I'll share this with you, is to be mindful of the moment, whatever that moment is. That's Afikoman way of living. So the moment can be filled with joy, the moment can be filled with, God forbid, sadness, the, you know, with a sense of loss, with, the moment can be filled with gain, the moment can be filled with pleasure, the moment can be filled with pain. That, whatever that moment is, be in it. Be in it. Do not look at it as, where will it get me? I already want to move out of it, not because it's painful, not because it's embittered, not because it's scarce. Not because it's limited, but because I just want to move on. And how many of us are living like that where production of whatever it is we're producing is the goal? It's the end product. Uh, Years ago when I worked for a few years at Starbucks, we saw this amazing, the managers went to this workshop to help us develop an appreciation for sustainable environmental stewardship. And it began with seeing a pound of coffee on a shelf in a Starbucks store, which is what the customer sees when they walk in. You walk into a Starbucks, you see all different types of blends of nicely packaged, marketed, beautifully arranged packages of coffee. The workshop filmed where this all came from, step by step by step. And now Starbucks went in and, and, and built hospitals for these people in different communities who were without medical, proper medical care. Then it talked about the shade-grown method rather than different. I forget all the terms. But what I do remember from this workshop is mindful living. Like there was a step one which involved whoever it involved. Then there was a step two. And for that step two, that was that person's livelihood. But when that person handed it off, that person's responsibility concluded, then it was a step three. This is what he's saying here. An afikoman way of eating focuses on the means, not the ends. Someone who's hungry, someone who's coming from a place of hunger, is stuffing the food in. All the person can do is just keep stuffing one experience after the next because they don't know when it will stop. And they want to get to that end goal of really being full. An afikoman way of eating is trust. Trust the moment. So the symbolic act of breaking the matzah into is a very visual way, Hevra. And this is what you can experience this Pesach. It's a visual way of declaring that in the history of an individual, not only the ends are important, but the means as well. Not only the final stage of Afikomen is important, but the intermediate stage of matzah as well. Think back, you're all successful A players. You all have so much that you've already in your lives have been achieving. But think back of all those moments 
that you needed to go through with the ups and downs. Not all of them were embittered. That was the previous one with Karpas. But whatever they were, they led up to this moment for all of us of sharing this piece of wisdom from Rav Cook together. If one step, if one step was not part of our history, of our experience, this would not be here right now. Whatever this is that we're experiencing. This is the essence of mindful living, of living bemudaut, it's called in, he, in Hebrew. Awareness, mindfulness, living with kavanah. So yes, I walk to the shuk in order to buy food for Shabbat. But what about the journey to the shuk? Especially when little now flowers are beginning to blossom and you can feel, even when it's cool and raining, you can still feel spring. It's already after Tu Bishvat. Just to breathe in that clean, fresh air. I'll, my legs will take me to the shuk. But why would I deny myself that moment of, of being in the moment of getting there? Well, there is a reason. Because when we eat a different way, we always focus on dessert. And this is a recurring theme of the Seder night. Oh, by the way, I was just thinking, it's not by the way, it's so crucial. There was another experience in our history soon after this where there was profound meaning in every step along the way even though we knew what the end goal would be. What is that? Can anyone recall historically? What happened after Yitzhiat Mitzrayim? After the giving of the Torah? After the building of the Mishkan? The event with the spies... You know, if you look at the chronological order, not where it is in location in the Chumash. After the Mishkan was built, we were one year out. We dedicated the Mishkan in Rosh Chodesh Nisan, two weeks short of a one year out. The plan was to go right to Israel. That was the goal. That was the end goal. We're out of Egypt. Let's get through this Midbar and get into Israel. And because of what happened with the Meraglim, with the spies the journey became delayed. It took 40 years instead of a much shorter time. And there were 42 encampments. And the Baal Shem Tov teaches that each of these encampments was a step in our journey, in our own journey, that had profound meaning. Yes, step 41 got us closer. We were much closer to Eretz Yisrael than step 5. But step five had a meaning in the course of 42 encampments. Because without five, we would have never reached 41. So one of the spiritual lessons of the whole 40-year experience in the Midbar, in our own spiritual wilderness, is where am I encamped now? Yes, I know in the back of my mind. I know I have a goal. Rav Cook is not suggesting... Don't be goal-oriented. 
it's we need to have goals so we know where we're you know what's the phrase if you don't know where you're going it's likely that you'll get there <laughs> which is nowhere because you don't know where you're going so it, we're urged to have goal goal setting defining one's goals but that does not replace the experience of getting there step 42 occurred yehoshua eventually brought in B'nai Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, but not without the 42 journeys before. So wherever you are in your journey, don't be so focused, he's saying, on the end that you miss out on wherever it is you are. And he says, to continue in the text, this is a recurring theme of the Seder night. The Mishnah in Pesachim 10.4, that means it's in chapter 10, it's the fourth Mishnah, stipulates, Matchil beginut umisayem b'shevach, that one begins with derogation, being defamed, and ends with praise. We begin by reminding ourselves that we were slaves. Well, there's different beginnings, actually. This is what he talks about now. There's a discussion in the, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, in Masechet Pesachim, Kuftet Zion, Amud Aleph, page 116a. Two sages of the Talmud disagree as to what form this genut, this shame, this derogation, this being defamed, what should that be? So Rav says, these were two great, great Amoraim, two great rabbis in the Talmud. And they were known for, let's say they had different opinions. They looked at the world from different perspectives. So there's always a Rav and a Shmuel. Whenever you hear Rav, you hear Shmuel. So Rav says that originally we should, we should say in the Seder, our fathers... We should say in the Seder that originally our fathers were idol worshippers. That's surely beginning the Seder with a place of genut. From the space of being defamed. That we were idol worshippers. But Shemua says he has a different opinion. No, the, the beginning point... The beginning point when it says one should begin matchilim beganut, he has a different opinion what the ganut means. It means avadim hayinu leparo b'mitzrayim. We were slaves to Paro in Egypt. So Rav is talking about our fathers being idol worshippers, and Shemuel is saying we were slaves. Either way fulfills the command of the Mishnah the expectation of the Mishnah, to begin the Seder from a place of shame. Now, the Maharal of Prague. So Rav Cook brings down from the Maharal of Prague. Now, his name was Rav Yehuda Lo Ben Betzalel, and the reason we call him the Maharal, because in Hebrew, and I highlighted in bold, the letters in English means Morenu Harav Lo. So that's Maharal. Our teacher, the Rav Lo. Now, Lo in Yiddish is the same as Yehuda, uh, is the same as, I'm sorry, Lo in Yiddish means lion. When Yaakov 
when Yaakov blessed Yehuda in Bereshit Memtetet in 49.9, he referred to Yehuda as a Goa a young cub of a lion. And that's why we have the phrase, the lions of Judah, you know, that symbol of the Jewish people. Because when he was first given the blessing from Yaakov, our history was in its infancy stage. We were, it was just the very beginning. So he called him a lion cub. But this rabbi, the Maharal of Prague, his first name was Yehuda. So his second name took on Lo, which in Yiddish means lion. So you see the connection there to the referencing that he's from the tribe of Yehuda. The Maharal of Prague comes from the Yehuda, the tribe of Yehuda. He lived in 1512 to 1609, and he was in Prague. Now, he explains the differing views between Rav and Shmuel, which Rav Cook adopts. Rav felt, now Rav refers to where do we begin in terms of depravity, in terms of being shamed with idol worship. Because he felt the greater derogation is the derogation of the soul. The body is only temporary, but the soul is eternal. A soul blemished by idolatry will be eternally lost. This is what Rav said. This is what Rav would have believed. Now, Shmuel, on the other hand, who said we should begin from a place of depravity, of being shamed, by referring to ourselves having been slaves, he felt the derogation of the body is to what's to be stressed. So the havoc that idolatry wreaks upon the soul is invisible. We don't see that. The effects, though, of physical slavery upon the body are readily discernible. Also, the spiritual result of having worshipped idolatry lies in the far off, very far off future. The injury of slavery, though, to the body is visible in the immediate present. So how is this resolved? Do you see how these two rabbis of the Gomorrah look? Look at something. They're looking at this. One is very much focused in the present. One is very much focused at the end goal. So how is this resolved? Does anyone know? How, how did the Maharal of Prague say this is resolved? What do we do in the Haggadah? We do both. <laughs> we say both. So after the four questions, after whoever asks the four questions, asks the four questions, we say, Avadim hayinu laparol b'mitzrayim. And after we mention the four sons, we say, That our forefathers were idol worshippers. So in true harmony, in true combining this and that, not having to feel one is right and one is wrong, not sitting in the seat of judgment, but sitting in that space of experience, they both have meaning. When I when I read these words over the years, I I didn't have any connection to them. 
you know, they were just words that were on paper. So this is helping, but I think I still need more. If I'm trying to explain this to people who sat through Seder after Seder and probably had the same reaction, you know, those are nice words. I guess I'm asking you to go further. And, to, well, and Rav Cook does that. What he, he brings in the Maharal of Prague's discussion just to understand the difference between Rav and Shmuel. And then the Maharal of Prague mentions that in our version of the Haggadah, now this isn't, remember, in the 16th century, this is in the 16th century, by then the Haggadah was very similar to how it is now. And he said we incorporate both, both what Rav and Shmuel said. Now Rav Cook takes that, and now you'll see what Rav Cook does with this. But why bring up the degrading themes of idolatry and slavery at all? Why would the Mishnah, going back to Pesachim, all this, the whole reason we're even discussing this is because the Mishnah says we need to begin with shame and end with praise. Matchilim b'ganut u'mesayim b'shevach. So really the question is on the Mishnah. Why would the Mishnah even cause us, even suggest to us that we begin the Seder night by mentioning a blemish in our history, whether it's slavery, whether it's idol worship, or a physical, a spiritual, here, or the end goal. Why even discuss it? We're celebrating our freedom. So Rav Cook goes to the heart. He goes right to the heart of this whole discussion and he says, why discuss it at all? So the whole point, and this goes back to the different ways of eating, the afikoman way of eating and the matzah way of eating. He ties it. It's such a beautiful little package at the end, how he ties it together. <clears throat> the whole point is that we are to find meaning not only in the end states of freedom and service of the true God, but in the means the inglorious states that proceeded as well. He's emphasizing what he taught earlier. This is an afikoman way of eating. Our experience as slaves, where did it have meaning for us as free people? Inculcated in us a servile attitude, which serves as a valuable resource even when one has attained freedom, actually even more so after one has attained freedom. Because in a truly free state, one is free to lower and humble oneself when it is appropriate to do so. Namely, in our relationship with God, however that plays itself out. Our capacity, our recognition our value of humility does not come from a spoiled population who always was born into a space of abundance. So the fact that we refer to our own history as being one where we endured slavery means we have it in us as free people to choose when to sub when to be subjugated, when to defer to a higher power, to another will, even in conflict resolution, just the capacity to say, you know what, I'll defer to you, 
Just that right there is a hachna'ah. That is a sense of humbling oneself. And that we got from this experience. 210 terrible, painful, miserable, cruel years of being enslaved by the Egyptians. Yet, Rav Cook is saying, you can take something from it as a free person. And what can you take from (laughs) the fact that our ancestors were idol worshippers? By the same token, it was by divine design that our ancestors were once idolaters. It was meant to be that even Avraham himself grew up in a family that worshipped idols. In the Midrash, it says that his father made them. In this pagan mind, imagination runs wild. Remember that phrase, imagination runs wild. If there had never been in our spiritual evolution a stage of paganism, we would have been bereft of the unhampered imaginative faculty. This would result, Hevra, in a service of God that is overly cerebral, sterile, and lackluster. So when you bring to your Jewish experience not only the capacity to be humble at times, to defer to either that which is greater than you or another person, equally what you can bring to your Jewish experience is imagination is imagination. And where do we get that from? The fact is that idol worshippers have a very big imagination because they imagine their own gods. So even that, even though that's to our, what would be called the ganut, to our, the experience of idol worship is to our shame, to our defamation, what we do with it, we can bring to the pure Jewish experience. Bring your imagination. Bring your creative mind. Don't check it at the door. God forbid. Don't go about your spiritual journey, he's saying, where it's so cerebral, it's so sterile, that it lacks creativity. It lacks imagination. And where do you get that imagination from? Your forefathers, who you say at your Seder table, from the beginning of our history, this is where I come from. I come from a people that worshipped idols, equals, had imagination, and I come from a people who were enslaved, equals, I can be humble. And if I can be humble and know when to as a free person, and if I can draw on that sense of imagination and know when to, my gosh, Weren't those parts of our history themselves adding meaning? Isn't that maybe what it means to begin with Ganut and to complete and to finish with Shevach that I can take and refine out of that something that I can experience as a free person where my experience as a free person is even more is more layered, is more com- there's a complexity to it. That without those two experiences, it would be, again, a flat plane.
So I leave you with that. I hope that in part answers your question about where to go with this. This is all from just breaking the matzah. <laughs> we just we've just broken the matzah here. <clears throat> so we're a little bit over time. So um, unless there are any pressing questions, I would urge you, and I do urge you, to jot them down. Please jot them down now while it's fresh. And let's begin next week's learning with any questions or insights as to Rav Cook's understanding and teaching on yachatz, including the Maharala Prague, including the Machlokat in the Gemara, including the phrase from the Mishnah. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.